Coast Church, Charlotte. Chapter number 10, we read about Jesus blessing children, and that is immediately followed by the story of the rich young ruler. Last week, we made an effort, an attempt to notice some of the possible significance of these two stories being placed together in the gospel of mark as though these principles like an arch are stronger together than they are apart the one thing that leaps fairly deep from these pages um, is uh the issue of uh diane your your mic's still on um uh, is is the challenge of riches and so since this is uh talking about that subject who can i pick on here i'm going to dedicate this here to um uh darren grimes because the challenge of riches i see your 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 face up there my brother uh the challenge of riches i know has been heavy in your life and um so this is dedicated to you <laughs> Jesus counsels the rich young ruler and answers him in a way that is a heavy answer for any of us. So I'm going to reread the text, and then we're going to speak for a few moments about the considerations, the principles that are in the, the text that we should take to prayer, to devotion, and to an attempt to grow in maturity, spiritual understanding, and godly wisdom. So we're going to reread um, the rich young ruler answers Jesus. Jesus asks about whether or not he has kept the commandments. And he answers and says, teacher, verse 20, all these things I have kept from my youth. 21. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Feel the empathy. Notice the uniqueness, not the contempt, the love, the empathy. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up your cross and follow me. But the ruler was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The underlying idea here, the profound spiritual challenge that is proffered to anyone who wants to take the text serious. Now, if you just want to use the Bible as a type of reassurance, abracadabra, where you read a little bit of it, you feel better about yourself. You don't really sit at the feet of Jesus, so to speak. You just kind of use it as a, a tradition uh, that reassures. You just can breeze past it check off that box in your daily bread reading plan, which is amazing, by the way, and I highly recommend. Uh, but you don't have to wrestle. You don't have to ask, seek, or knock. Now, I think all of us as zealous believers should be almost obsessed with asking, seeking, and knocking. Why do I say that? Because when Jesus taught, he did not teach the kingdom of God as formula, where if you do this, do this, do this, then you're good. Other people are bad. That's not the teaching of Jesus. He gives a simple directive that is a universe in itself. He doesn't give you a formula. He gives you a way. So 
What's an example of that? If he would have made it simple, like uh, stop, you know, complaining about this, stop saying that and show up at church every day. And that's enough. He didn't. Instead, he said open ended challenges like seek ye first the kingdom of God and you, the reader across 20 centuries, have to ask yourself, okay, what does that mean for me in this hour, in this time? What does that mean for me? If you can answer that question, then you will have a path forward. But if you can't answer that question, you will struggle with it. Excuse me. And so this warning, this underlying principle of the unique difficulties of riches and wealth, the unique difficulties of, or let me say the unique temptations of wealth are in this story. But before we get to that, let's ask ourselves what the rich young ruler got right. First of all, he got a certain hunger about wanting to do things right. He already was in a religious tradition. He already had status and prestige within that system. If that's all he was looking for, like a Pharisee, the Lord could have said, well, if you want people to know you prayed, then you have your reward. You got what you wanted out of it. He could have accepted a life of, well, I got what I wanted out of it, which was to have status and preeminence within my organization. To seek Jesus is to risk that status, do you see? To risk that place. He has some, he, he has a lot going for him. Rather than retreating into his human-derived form of godliness, it's a form that denies the necessity of seeking the mysterious ways and paths of God. Uh, he's not content to just have a form of godliness. He's willing to actually risk the criticism of his world in order to go seek answers from Jesus. That's a good thing to say about him. He's obviously been zealous in his life. He sought to keep the um, covenant, and he believes he has kept the commandments. He's a little vain about it, but what religious person isn't? I mean, the favorite sin of the religious is vanity, and that applies to all of us. Uh, secondly, he came to the right person. He didn't go to a local philosopher asking for a way to eternal life. That's a check in his box. That's a statement in his favor. He had a hunger. He came to the right person. Here's much I think even, even more impressive. He asked the right questions. Think about this. He's not asking about things that are secondary in their uh, eternal life essence, in their importance. He's not arguing over whether or not the Essenes are right or the Pharisees are right, or the Sadducees are right, or any, the school of Hillel or Shammai, he, he cuts right to the heart of the matter. And he asks this question, what, what do I need to do to obtain eternal, eternal life? 
That is the central, the central question. What shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Verse 17. Um, so this shows a clarity of, of thought. Um, he's hungry, right person, the right questions. And he asks again in verse 20, uh, basically, what I've done all that. What, the implied question there is, well, what else should I do? I've done all of that. Well, what else should I do? Um, and he, having shown his hunger, having come to the right person, having asked the right questions, <laughs> um, he even so managed to make the wrong decision. And this after Jesus had given him not just the broad principled right answer, which is uh, keep the commandments, blah, 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 keep the law, but the specific tailored answer to him. I want to take a moment to talk about that. Um, there are multiple people in the Gospels who have encounters with Jesus and receive specific advice that if they would have taken that word from the Lord and turned it into ministry, would have created a very unique church culture. I'll start, first of all, with the rich young ruler because we're talking about him. Imagine him starting a church or whatever you want to call it in the time. Jesus is ascended. He's a believer. He starts a church. What is his central doctrine sell all you have and give to the poor. And when he's preaching, you know how us preachers do. When he's preaching, he's like, I was there when it happened. And I think I don't know. Jesus looked me right between the eyes and said, go sell all you have and give to the poor. My God. And I'm here to tell you, if you don't go sell all you have and give to the poor, heaven is not going to be your home. So we'll call that church, uh, the giving, the giving church. But that was tailored to him. There were other rich men, men in the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't tell them whether it is the tax collector or Joseph of Arimathea. They both were wealthy. They both gave in various ways, but they don't get this tailored. There is in all of us a right way of being, and there is also the unique temptations of our heart. And if you are blind to this, um, it will grow into a form of not just self-deception, but religious self-deception. And that is where faith turns toxic. If you were to find another individual in the scripture with specific advice, um, you would find the demoniac of Gadara who set free from the demons, kneels before Jesus and says, um, let me follow you. And Jesus says, no, I want you to stay here and be a testimony to this community. They've rejected me. I want you to be a testimony to them. And so he stays and he doesn't have anything but that specific word. And if he starts a church, that church culture would call it deliverance center. <laughs> Every Sunday they're praying for deliverance because that's his specific testimony. Do you see? So, Here's a man, the rich young ruler, came to the right person, asked the right questions, received 
divine answers. And in spite of getting all that right, he went away sorrowful because what he needed to do was not listed in the law. It was not required by Moses. It was not even taught or commanded anywhere else by Jesus. It was that moment for him, unique opportunity. And he could not jump the hurdle of opportunity that was available in that moment for him. And the Bible says, in spite of everything, even the fact that Jesus loved him, he went away sorrowful. He made the wrong decision. Now, uh, it's easy for us to read the story and kind of say, oh, he made the wrong decision. Um, but we should at least have some sympathy toward him because that would have been hard for any of us. Um, it's such a leap of faith to live without security of any type. Let me give you a shocking statistic. Um, many of you have heard me say this before. I, I often say it because I think it helps us, uh, particularly those of us who over time and being raised in a Christian homes by godly parents, we learn self-discipline and we had good mentors and they taught us either how to have successful careers or start businesses or whatever. And it's easy for us to lose empathy for people who are living week to week. They're barely making it. Um, 57% of Americans, that's almost six out of every 10 cars you drive past, cannot come up with $1,000 for an emergency. If something happens, their transmission goes out. They have to come up with $1,000. It represents a crisis for them. They do not have the money. That means if you do have $1,000 saved, the first thing I want to say, well done. It's a sign of stewardship. More importantly, it's a sign of self-discipline and self-denial to turn away from all the stuff that you could be blowing your money on and to save up uh, good for you. But we can't lose empathy for the people who, for whatever reason, they, they did not either bad examples or the cyclical poverty or bad decisions. You, you understand what I'm saying? They literally live that close to the edge. If you haven't been that way in a long time, let's say you have learned to be disciplined and you have focused on discipline. Um, it would be a scary thing for us to take up offering at the church and me say, I, I would have to really, really be led by the spirit to do this because it, I, I'm, I'm not a, a natural offering taker, but say, Say an angel came down. Well, that'd be easy because then there's no faith involved because it's a demonstration of heaven. Say we had a, a visiting preacher and he said, I feel, I, feel a, I feel led right now that if you will, if all of you will take the money that you have saved, that is your emergency fund, the money that you rely on, if you all would give every dollar that you have access to there would be a citywide revival that broke out. Um, I'm going to tell you right now, now you can act righteous if you want to, but that would be harder than you think. Why? What if he's wrong? What if I give all the money and nothing changes? Faith is where our battles are fought. What if, what if, what if he was just ate too much pizza last night? <laughs> what if this, I, I, I worked hard to save this money. This is the only I mean, what I have an, I drive an old car. 
I drive a truck with 150,000 miles on it. What, what, what if, what if something goes wrong? I've got nothing saved. You understand what I'm saying? That should help us have some sympathy toward the rich young ruler because in this moment of scripture, you see how our lives are made to feel safer by the money we have, by the wealth we have. You say, I don't think I'm wealthy. Well, with the exception of a few of you, by the standards of the rest of the world, we are all of us profoundly blessed. And by the standards of many, many billions of people, you are not just blessed, you are stinking rich. Um, A bad week for you is when your hot water heater goes out and you have to live without hot water. There's people who live on a dollar a day. They, they've never had hot water in their life unless they cooked it on a, you understand. So how is it then that riches deceive us and make it difficult for us to access the kingdom of heaven? How is that? Are riches in themselves what is wrong? I wholeheartedly say no. It's not the riches themselves. Um, it is the lust of and the deceit of. Those are not the same things. Um, some of the, I, I think, well, firstly, the ministry of Jesus was blessed by people who had money. Um, the cloak he wore was a rich man's cloak. It was not stitched together. It was one bespoke custom weave for him. And that's why, and it had notable valuable value to anyone who saw it, which is why even a Roman soldier wouldn't separate it because that that's nice. I'm going to destroy that. That's nice. Um, further, he was buried in a rich man's tomb uh, and Joseph of Arimathea would go on to become a known member of the early church. Uh, further, Um, most of the Apostle Paul's New Testament churches were started in the houses of either wealthy people or wealthy widows. Somebody had to have a big enough house for people to come together. It's not the money. It's the lust of and the deception of that. Uh, Let's talk about the lust of. uh, We'll talk about that. Um, It is uh, very much natural for us to wish that we could do what we wanted when we wanted. Um, and if we just could have more of us, which is what money is, money is you accept more of you, whatever you want, whenever you want it, um, then you would be happy. Um, I use some Bible on why that is not true. Um, I would say to you this spiritual principle which I think should be established in our lives um, again and again. Ecclesiastes 5 and 10, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is vanity. If you think your life will feel profoundly different when you have more money, it won't. And nor will you have contentment or meaning that you are assuming, assuming will be there. There will be things in your life that are easier, yes, but your life itself will probably not be easier. 
that is very much a deception that meaning is on the other side of money. Meaning is not on the other side of money. Money makes certain things in your life better. Riches make certain things in your life better. Uh, yes, uh, but they do not serve as a door uh, to meaning. Uh, riches promise much to the lusts of the flesh, the eye, and the lust of our pride, but they offer almost nothing in terms of meaning to our soul or peace to our minds. That's a deception. If you're a worrier, you'll just you'll worry just as much. You just worry about different things. Instead of whether or not you're going to pay the rent on your house, you'll worry about whether or not the third rent house you bought needs a new roof and whether or not the people are, if you're a worrier, you're going to worry. Next, riches can disappear. Um, And then who are you? There's something more important than the money. And that is who you are. Riches can be stolen. Uh, Proverbs 23 and five, riches certainly make themselves wings and fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Then what? Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. The meaning that would give your soul rest and your mind peace is not found through possessions or uh, the benefits of wealth. Uh, You cannot buy that peace. You have to earn that peace by pursuing the presence of God and settling the questions of meaning in your own soul. Proverbs 49, six through nine, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their wishes, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly and it shall cease forever. Uh, Think about that. You cannot buy uh, salvation. You cannot buy life. Uh, also, Psalms 49, verse 16, do not be afraid when one comes becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. You see the almost ambiguous nature of wealth? It's, it comes, it goes. You may have it, you may, not, you may not have it. Don't be afraid when you don't have it. Don't be afraid when you do have it. This real work of the soul is at a deeper level than how many zeros are on your bank account. And finally, wealth cannot deliver you from judgment. Nor can wealth deliver you from divine favor. Favor is different than blessing, different than prosperity, different than possessions. God knows what you need and when you need it. You do not want to double your bank account the same week you're going to die. How is it going? You understand what I'm saying? What you don't just need money at any cost, blessing at any cost. What you need is divine favor. Uh, that's another message. Zephaniah one eighteen. neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. Um, and so the underlying principle that I want you to take away uh, from, from, from this, um, these scriptures I've, I've read here is that 
riches are deceitful. Um, though we desire them and we lust for them, and that's true of all of us. Everybody, everybody wants more. It's the nature of being the flesh. Those who desire silver will not be satisfied by silver, the rich man said. Um, so, however, riches, they deceive us into thinking that we don't need anything. We're okay. We're in good shape. And, of course, the parable of the rich fool illustrates that in uh, Luke chapter number 12, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentiful. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store his crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll build big more barns. You get the, you know the story. Jesus says, look, you're about to die. You don't know what's good for you. Your passion for possession has deceived you. Uh, in addition to the deception of wealth is most of us have enough temptation and struggle with vanity and contempt toward others without more vanity in our life. Um, wealth will promote a sense of arrogance, a sense of pride. Um, and Ecclesi excuse me, Ezekiel and Hosea both talk about it was that pride, which was the downfall of Sodom and Gomorrah and the nation of Israel. Now remember, both Ezekiel and Hosea are writing to children of Israel who are going to be judged. And both of them compare the pride of Israel to the pride of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, most people don't talk about this, but here's Ezekiel 49, or excuse me, verse 16. Chapter 16, verse 49. Look, this is the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. They were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away. How about Hosea 13? Uh, well, I'm running out of time. Uh, so uh, let me keep going through my notes here. Pride blinds us and it leads to vanity as if we did not have enough problems with vanity. Uh, Lord, help us all to not be deceived by pride, deceived by wealth, or aflame with the lust for that. And so let me give you real quick, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to do this fast for time's sake. I'm going to end with a personal testimony that makes me look bad. Um, because if you want to have a confession culture, you can't just confess the stuff that makes you look good, Okay. So while y'all get all excited about that, let me give you the one, two, three, four takeaways from a scriptural overview of the problem of riches. Um, let's talk about these first. Let's talk about this first one in terms of folly. Um, there's a folly to it all. Why be anxious to be rich or anxious about not being rich? when riches themselves can be a curse to us and covetousness, which is lusting after someone else's riches is viewed by God as idolatry. Yes. <laughs> idolatry. Ephesians five and five for this, you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of of Christ and God. So we have to free ourselves of wanting what other people have. You don't know what it feels like to be them. 
you don't know. So let them be stand alone before their 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 masters. Um, it's not a sin to be rich, but the lust to be rich is a sin. It's not a sin to be rich, but the lust to be rich is a sin. And um, probably, I think it's safe to say, will not go unpunished. First Timothy 6 and 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. About Proverbs 28 and 20, a faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Lesson number two, we have, so the first is a warning against the lusts of wealth and riches and the folly of thinking that would fix our life. The second takeaway is um, we have a Christian calling and duty to live with godly contentment. We do our best, not so we'll be rich, but as unto the Lord, because we know whatever we have or don't have here on earth, there is a better day ahead when God will make level an unfair unjust, unlevel road. Uh, <laughs> let me give you some philosophy. Socrates, famous quote, uh, he who is richest is content with the least. The richest man is the man who is content with the least. First uh, Timothy 6 and 6, contentment with godliness is great gain. Contentment is a godly virtue that we learn. Philippians 4 and 11, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Uh, you get the idea. Um, turning away from the deception of wealth and deciding I'm going to live contentment as a praise. Contentment is going to be a worship. Lord, you know me. You know my personality. You know my lusts. I'm choosing contentment as a way of saying, you know better than me how, or you know better than me what my best life should look like. Um, and so learning the virtue also places a godly constraint on our values, and that matters. Okay, here's the third takeaway lesson. Um, this is going to surprise some of you. We need, we have a biblical obligation to not hate the rich. Now, I know it is very much a part of human history and the human heart to hate the rich, to blame the rich. But we have a biblical obligation to have, if not empathy, at least sympathy for the rich and to not automatically assume they're crooked or evil or the like. Um, Jesus loved the rich young ruler. Jesus looking at him, loved him. I think that example is contrary to the world, which it's so popular uh, to assume all rich people are evil. Uh, all rich people robbed somebody. This is a vanity and a deception and rich people need salvation as much as anybody else. Um, they need patience as much as anybody else. And our hatred of them, our dislike of them is not a sign of our accurate 
economic insight, but it is a profound side of our envy of them. Lastly, um, we all have to remind ourselves that we are called. So let's 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 just review real quick here. You are created by God. You were created to work. Work was a part of the garden before the fall. God expected you, like him, you, made in his image, to do, to create, to make a world have order in it, just as he made a world have order in it. That's why he placed us in the Genesis, teaching us spiritual insight in a garden. He said, you're going to tend it. You're going to name it. It's going to be what you do in it, and it's going to be what you call it. If you don't, if you if you let it go, it's going to go. If you call it terrible, it's going to be terrible. These are spiritual lessons, and God places you with work as part of your divine creation. You have gifts. You should go work valiantly as unto the Lord as part of your testimony. The result of doing that is that people will want to do business with you. They will prefer you. They will, they, they will believe that you are not looking for a reason to harm them. You're not looking for a reason to lie to them. You are living with values. Business will come your way. I am a personal testimony of this. And so I proclaim it as a personal testimony. People will choose you. You watch out for them. You take care of them. They will want to do business with you. On the other side of them choosing you is the first real reliable business relationships in your life. Out of that network of reliable business relationships is all your future wealth potential for your family, whether it's career, whether it's corporate, whether it's business, whether it is working in, an, uh, in a, a job uh, circumstance. The principles are the same. And so why do I say that? It is natural for people who live with discipline, who discipline the lust of their flesh, who serve as unto the Lord to prosper. This is not a curse upon them and they do not become evil. This is divine favor, do you see? And so this is why we have to have a healthy view of wealth and riches because when you begin to prosper, wherever you're starting from, there will come a day when you have more than your parents had and that's the beginning of potential deception of wealth, the potential vanity, etc. A day will become, as you progress, when you're doing better than all your friends. That moment, you don't have to be a billionaire with a private jet or three to have vanity. It'll start right then. If you continue progressing, you, you reliable, you communicate, you score high on conscientiousness with your business partners, you take care of them. They start taking care of you. People start to seek each other out. They do not want to have a work environment where it's a nightmare and everybody's cheating everybody. It's exhausting. Those people find each other and they turn into a crab bucket. You avoid that. You start finding these relationships. You did, there a day comes, you have more money than any of your siblings. That's a moment for you to have vanity, to sneer, to look down your nose. All the problems are there. So wherever you are in that scale, not just a faithfulness, faithfulness comes first, but if you will be faithful, fruitfulness will also follow if you will work it. 
So out of this comes blessing. And at the moment that blessing comes, the deceitfulness of wealth at that moment, the potential for vanity at that moment, you begin to feel safe because there was a day when you couldn't afford a nice car. And now, honestly, you don't do it because you don't want to pay the rip off prices for a new car, perhaps. But if you wanted one, you go down there, sign a piece of paper and drive off almost anything you wanted in there. That's a good thing. But if you're not careful, that will deceive and cause vanity to build. So four principles. Um, number one, beware of covetousness. Uh, secondly, we have a duty of contentment. Thirdly, we don't hate the rich. We don't necessarily approve of them just because they have money, but we see them as people who need God. And finally, uh, this is the last takeaway that I want to leave you with. And then I got to quit because my time's up. Whatever I have or don't have, I choose to place my faith in the power and presence of Almighty God. Whether I'm driving a new truck or an old truck, I choose to place my power, my faith in the power and presence of God. You see, whether I can afford some a new suit or I'm, I can't afford a new suit. <clears throat> I hadn't bought a suit in probably five years. It's not because I can't afford one. I just, <clears throat> I'm in a low clothing interest stage of life. <laughs> um, you, you understand what I'm saying? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I choose to take everything I have and hold it lightly in my hands and say, God, if you would like to bless, that's fine. But don't give me something that's going to destroy me. I want to stand with Abraham and say, I don't want any of these, any of their wealth, because then they'll say they made me rich. I would rather be poor and them know I'm God's man than to have a wealth they say I took from them. And so what did Abraham do? He gave them all their people back, all the kings of the Judean River Valley. He, he gave them all their money back, the Jordan River Valley, I should say. Um, Was he blessed beyond measure? Did he have favor? Yes. Were there people who were richer than him? Yes. Did it bother him? Not a bit. Why? Favor. Were there kings with more? Yes. Did it bother him? No. Why? Favor. What he wanted from God and what they wanted from life were not the same things. And so now all of us, children of Abraham, gather together and we lift up our hands made holy by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And we say, Lord, I have, but I hold it lightly in my hands. I want to live with faithfulness. I want you to bless me with spiritual fruitfulness. And I trust you as the final strength, the final answer, the final source of life in my life, I trust you. I don't trust a bank account, an insurance policy, an investment scheme, a business, a career, a college degree. I trust you. All of those things can grow wings and disappear. All of those things can play into my own vanity and my own willingness to create a self-deceiving narrative that destroys my soul while justifying my own lusts that were empowered by wealth. Lord Jesus, we cleanse ourselves as much as we can 
from that deception. And we ask you to create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit. In Jesus' name we pray and we thank you for it today. Amen. Uh, I have not looked to see if there's any questions. So I will give, I'm checking here. Uh, I don't see any questions. Um, so I am going to uh, just uh, perhaps uh, wait a moment more. Uh, and then uh, I will give you all time to to greet one another. Uh, so starting uh, next week, we are going to be moving on into chapter uh, into verse uh, 23 of chapter number 10. And so if you want to read it between now and then, you can read verses 23 through verse number 31 of next week. And the theme is Jesus um, talking about uh, continuing this subject we've talked about, which for time's sake, I've not gotten into uh, easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I'm going to try to explain that because if you read it literally, it means no rich people can be saved. And can you repeat the scripture reference, please? Yes. Mark chapter number 10, and we are reading uh, verses 23 through 31 for next week. Um, but really, if I would recommend you all to read the whole chapter number 10 and let it sit with you. Um, we've been talking about it. It's fresh in your memory. I promise you, you will see things that I have not seen. I have not. You will, if you study it, um, you will have, I like to carry it in my pocket. And that's why when I go to talk about it, a lot of times I'll have, I'll have more than I have time for. Um, because I've kind of carried that in my pocket for a little while. And so, um, love you all. God bless you. Um, Sunday, but have a great day. Uh, we love you. God bless. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.